Hello and welcome to Conspiracy Games and Counter Games, Season 2 of The Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and its anxieties. My name is Adam Kingsmith and I'm a PhD candidate in politics at York University. And I'm Aris Komporoso Safanasu. I'm an Associate Professor of Sociology at University College London. This season, our podcast is dedicated to going beyond the headlines and the easy answers and exploring the rise of conspiracies, conspiracy theories, and conspiratorial thinking in a gamified capitalist world. This episode features a conversation with Halifax-based Black Canadian poet, activist, and scholar, L. Jones. It was recorded on July 26th as part of the Conspiracies and Countergames Summer Institute, organized by this project and rival, the Reimagining Value Action Lab. We now turn it over to the Institute's host, Max Haven, Canada Research Chair in Culture, Media and Social Justice at Lakehead University. So let me introduce Elle briefly. Uh, Elle is a poet, a journalist, a professor, and an activist living in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and just joined the faculty full-time at Mount St. Vincent University as an assistant professor in uh, political and cultural studies. Uh, Elle is a two-time national spoken word champion, was poet laureate of Halifax in Canada from 2013 to 2015. Her first book, Live from the African Resistance, was published in 2014. Uh, she was a resident at the International Writing Program at the University of Iowa in 2015. She was the 15th Nancy's Chair on Women's Studies at Mount St. Vincent University in 2017. And I've known Elle for many years as a stalwart and inspiring anti-racist prison and police abolitionist uh, activist, and also uh, a really inspiring poet and writer. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Max, and thank you for that introduction. <laughs> um, so, Elle, I wanted, I wanted to begin by asking you about the kind of state of Black liberation struggles today. Um, both here, where we're both located right now in Canada, but the territory is currently known as Canada, uh, but also throughout this uh, continent and, and internationally. And specifically, I think a lot of people feel that here in Canada, because you know the Trudeau government is so cuddly and warm and the Biden administration has replaced the uh, demonic hordes of the Trump administration, that thing, things are great now, things are fine. Um, I'm, I think you probably are skeptical towards those claims. And I wondered what you think of the state of struggle at this moment. Well, yeah, the first thing before we get to Canada is I do think it's really important to acknowledge the internationalism of the Black struggle, um, particularly because people continue to believe that all advancements in anything really, but like originate from the States. Um, so, you know, while the global South has really been up in flames for the last couple of years, you know, we continue to only focus on what's happening in the U.S. and then base what's happening in Canada there. So um, we must look, you know, South Africa, for example, um, post-ANC, there's obviously some really interesting political movements going on there as people realize that, you know, the representation of Black people in politics without the changing of any of the economic and social structures, that's why the ANC is gunning down miners in Maracana, right? So obviously now you have in South Africa that real struggle for people to assert the ongoing liberation goals that were really betrayed by the ANC. And that is actually instructive for us because in this moment, of course, um, where we had the last summer, where you know we had the summer of liberation struggle. And my sort of argument has been, how did we take all of this um, energy for anti-state activism? And particularly in Canada, we ended up focusing on business and entrepreneurship. It's entirely predictable, but you know, really, 
like disheartening in many ways, right? That um, you got a lot of people that saw their opportunity through. And as the Black Lives Matter struggle, the great thing about it is, you know, ordinary Black people related to this idea of Black Lives Matter. And they didn't have to do, you know, a graduate course. People understood and people have understood and Black people have always understood that, and especially working class Black people that live in the housing and the shelters and the prison, like you don't need to teach that Black person anything about their own liberation, their own state of unfreedom or like racism, you know, like it's not like people don't know that. Um, and people relate to this idea of Black Lives Matter and they understand it. But the problem, I guess, is also that creates the opportunity when you have a kind of diffuse platform for people to take advantage of that, right? And so what we saw, and I say this is a member of the Black middle classes, is, you know, a lot of professional Black middle class people um, benefiting from this. I mean, I got a job. I'm like, this is not the point of our struggle is for more professorships or more people on boards. Um, I've been very critical of Black um, North Initiative. People can go to uh, Desmond and I started this website and then we never write on it, but we did um, manage a couple of pieces. It's called Yes, Everything. The reason why we don't write on it is we didn't want to put this pressure on ourselves to just produce. So we write when we feel like writing. Um, and obviously like Desmond's very busy doing things. This is Desmond Cole, sorry. Desmond's very busy doing um, encampment support and stuff. He's been doing a lot of that. So we don't necessarily have time to, to write when we're engaged in our communities. But two of the pieces that we did are looking at Black North Initiative. For those who don't know, Black North Initiative is founded by Wes Hall, um, a Bay Street a multimillionaire, you know, who'd got his money basically sharking for mining companies in the oil and gas industry. And when he uh, saw the opportunity through George Floyd, he released an editorial, I think it was in the Globe and Mail being like, there's racism on Bay Street, and then started this movement of corporations to sign on to be diverse. So right away, like this is a problem. So one of the things we wrote about is the companies that are signing this pledge that they have is stuff like Kinross Mining who murders black people. They've murdered people in Ghana. Uh, they're praising Enbridge, you know, where Enbridge is just open line three in Minnesota, you know, and is, is being protested. And ironically in the press re release where they praise Enbridge, they say they're creating a talent pipeline. And I'm like, one other pipeline they're creating is, you know, cross indigenous territories, right? So this kind of idea, right, which we have to push back upon and people are very reluctant to do so because we still, of course, carry this idea that any black representation is good, that any black people in any place is good, that this means we've made it. And it made sense in the context of the 1930s and 1940s and 1950s where we really, you know, had no opportunity. But in 2021, where we have black politicians and professors and doctors and all these respectable things, is this really, did that bring us freedom? Did Barack Obama bring the mass of black people freedom or did prison population still increase? Did he not bomb African countries, right? So um, that kind of thing is it, it, difficult, right? So one of the beautiful things about this moment is, you know, I used to say there's like a hundred abolitionists in Canada and we all know each other. And now there's like thousands because especially young people have are really interested in these ideas are, are doing amazing organizing like the young people in Hamilton have been doing amazing work so you know I have this great infusion particularly of young people coming to these ideas refining them living them you know going full bore with them but then the side effect is as always you have the gatekeeping element of the state that comes in and takes the, that level of you know the bourgeois and offers yeah okay you want more board positions we can give you more board positions right and so that's kind of what we've ended up with but if you look at what the government has done We've had, I mean, they did the C21, the justice bill that eliminated some mandatory minimums of drug use, but that's not for us. 
Like, and then they promptly followed it up with C-22, like, don't worry, we're still going to be tough on gangs and guns, right? So I'm like, in other words, don't worry, those black people aren't going to be running wild, but your white kid isn't going to be arrested for drugs now, okay? You know, so that's all we got on justice. And then meanwhile, they're like, oh, here's all this money for entrepreneurship and businesses. And, and everybody's fallen into this. Issue. I cannot tell you how many studies have come out about the importance of black business. And I'm like, black capitalism cannot replace white capitalism. This is not like, this is not new, you know, it's not new thinking, but um, this is where we are. So I'm both, you know, disheartened and enraged. And then also, of course, encouraged because, you know, we also are seeing mass movement around this, but yeah, the issue in Canada is always, as you mentioned, that, you know, one, we always look to the United States and we only validate and understand what's happening through that lens and not any other country. It's not, it's international, it's just the US. And then there's always, of course, the idea that that doesn't happen in Canada, that doesn't happen in the same way, you guys are importing this into Canada. Canada doesn't have the same history. Blackness itself is seen as not a particularly Canadian thing. Like blackness is seen as belonging to the United States. There's also black American imperialism, right? that along with American imperialism exceptionalism, black people become part of that. Like black people critique our states, but we also belong to our states. And there's many, many black people that, because you know it takes a lot of deconstruction and decolonization to like, you know, and maybe some people aren't inclined to that, like there's black conservatives, right? So you get a lot of black people that also push very like US exceptional ideas within black discourse. So I think it's quite difficult um, to sort of claim the thinking that we do here in different ways, you know? Um, there's been a long project of that, obviously, um, you know, Ronaldo Walcott in Black Like Who, Dion Brand, Emma Basie Phillip, um, you know, uh, George Alec Clark, like, there's all kinds of Black thinkers that have been thinking for years, like, what is Black Canada? What makes our experience particularly located? Um, but that's always the, the question, right? That we very much have this reflexive thing. Oh, people in the States are paying for kids to go see Black Panther. We should pay for kids to go see Black Panther. You know, people celebrating Juneteenth here, and it's like, but this isn't, part of our culture. And I have no problem with celebrating black shit, but then like, let's also celebrate like whatever South Africa said, let's celebrate Haitian, you know, let's celebrate the Haitian revolution. Like it's only Juneteenth, right? Um, and then I think particularly in Nova Scotia, uh, there's, there's not, uh, and for various reasons, um, mostly being the need to claim our own communities because um, of course Nova Scotia is, is often left out of the black landscape of Canada, which is imagined as all new immigrants from the Caribbean and then more recently from the continent. Um, so, of course, African Nova Scotians who have been here for hundreds of years are constantly fighting to assert identity. And there's like specific community, a specific social structure. But sometimes what gets lost in that is the internationalist outlook. Um, so that can be difficult, too, you know, where there's all these ideas moving around the world. And we are by no means in the West the leaders of those ideas, but we like to think we are. And I think it's really, really important to engage. I mean, like the land back movement in South Africa, you know, that's actually very instructive for Nova Scotia, but I think it can be challenging to sort of ask people to, as you try and live your own life and, you know, just stop some white person from like buying out your grandmother's home. You should also be being, paying attention to, you know, what's happening in with black people in Uruguay. Like that's a lot to ask, you know, but um, yeah, I do think that, you know, we need to keep pushing for an internationalist recognition. There's black people every, you only, you only ever, ever see black people from the rest of the world, like when you watch soccer, you know? And then you're like, oh, like, why is the whole Costa Rican team black, you know? And then you're like, okay, like Africans are everywhere, right? So, you know, that we're suppressed everywhere and our histories are forgotten everywhere. And I think we also can't build struggle without understanding that, like we can't build struggle in a vacuum. So that was a long answer, but yeah. No, it's great. It, it, it brings up a lot of things that I want to come back to a little later in the conversation, including the way that um, 
black liberation activists who have refused kind of black capitalism and and kind of being folded into nationalism conservative nationalism have been targeted um but before we go there i want to ask i want to follow up on something else which is that now it seems like we're seeing that based largely on a great deal of like racial illiteracy there are the appearance of all of these kind of strange conspiracy theories about uh, the kind of liberal incorporation of black liberation um, movement. So I'm thinking particularly about the furor that is now being fomented, especially in the United States for very political reasons around critical race theory, where you know this, this set of ideas, which was basically developed by black women in the United States in dialogue with international uh, black liberation movements and and movements for social justice now becomes this demonic uh, projection for white people who appear to be fearful that uh, you know the long-standing powers and privileges that were associated with whiteness are being jeopardized. What do you, what do you make of this moment? I mean, it seems so beyond the pale. The kind of um, fear mongering that's being whipped up around this. What how, what should we make of it? I mean, this is not, this is the exact mechanism. I mean, it's the same way as people have pointed out, the only person in Canada so far to face any consequences for residential schools and the discovery, discovery of, because there was no discovery, like indigenous people knew the bodies were there, right? Like people just didn't want to listen, but the re, so I don't know how even how to describe it, the 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 acknowledgement finally of, of those dead children and who face consequences harsha walia you know for saying burn it all down right so this is very common where conservative elements will always construct some form of outrage in order to never confront the thing that they're dealing with and then of course one of the ways that whiteness works is it's like this isn't happening this isn't happening you're crazy it's crazy everyone knows it happened and there's like not missing a beat so like that was like trudeau right where trudeau immediately jumped to like well we all know about this like there's always this idea that you just skip the part of of like acknowledgement recognition dealing like so white people deny, 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 and when they can't deny anymore, they act like people knew this all along. You know, you see this with like stuff that's being released as we get papers from like the Afghanistan war or something. And then, you know, conservative papers will be like, yawn. And you're like, no, that's actually new. But you want to pretend it's old so you don't have to actually deal with it. You want to pretend it's over. So I'm not, I mean, this is, is in various ways. I mean, you get both these kind of overt forms. And as I said, the more covert forms, such as appointing black middle-class gatekeepers in order to speak to the government and stuff. And they're part of the same mechanism. And I mean, the funny thing is critical race theory is, is relatively anodyne. I mean, essentially it's just the idea that you know slavery was a legal economic and social arrangement that permeated all of society and it simply doesn't end when when the pen stroke ends and that you know so for all, obviously the sort of civil rights idea was if we just get inclusion into these systems just what i was talking about before right like if we can just get black judges and black teachers then we'll be fine you know, like and then of course critical race theory recognizes that no actually racism is embedded in these systems right that the court is not actually neutral right so the pretense of like enlightenment post-enlightenment european belief is that like yeah this idea that you know you can have these objective spaces you can i always say this about i have this rant about how this is why every civil rights movie is set in a courtroom right like mississippi burning amistad uh, to kill a mockingbird, because the idea they're telling you is sure the system, we make mistakes, but the system is there to correct it. So this white system will come in and stop this lynching or free these slaves or deal with segregation. Of course, not the organizers, not the people on the ground, right? So um, 
you know, like this is is always the, the white myth. So critical race theory, just by challenging that idea that, hey, maybe the question isn't like whether there's black judges in court or make it more fair. Maybe the problem is that court system is derived from enslavement and particular power relations and particular class relations. And we have to undo and recognize that. So it's like really basic stuff. I mean, it's really sort of fascinating if you read the new Jim Crow now. I had thought that book was so much older, you know, like it was strange. I think it's 2010, right? And I always think of that as like so well known, you know, like, oh, we know. I'm like, no, this is actually like relatively recent, right? But kind of what seems like a basic idea, right? Um, so this is all critical race theory is saying is that, you know, these race and power relations underlie all social institutions and we simply can't end on inclusion or EDI or whatever. So it's so non-threatening, but of course nobody's read it. I mean, it's like when transphobes like TERFs talk about people being Marxist and like you realize class-based analysis is more, you know, people don't like, not like the TERFs will always be like, um, oh, you know, they'll, they'll use sort of right-wing talking points about people being Marxist and then be like, we need rights as a sex-based class. And I'm like, you know, class-based thinking is Marx. Like you are doing Marx right now. You know, so they don't know what they're talking about. Nobody's read any critical race theory. It's not like anyone sitting down like Kimberly Crenshaw or Derek Bell. It just has race in it and it's a lightning rod for ignorance, right? Um, but it's not surprising. And this is always the problem of, again, like wanting proximity to whiteness in any kind of form, you know? Um, this is the mistake we continually make as black people that somehow we can persuade or just be more human. This is, you know, like, so is anybody surprised that like white people aren't gonna let us march on the streets and gain liberation? No, you know, so like they, whether, yeah, like in the harder forms, they'll like tear gas you, they'll shoot rubber bullets at you, they'll murder you, they'll, evict you and then you know you have the cultural side where it becomes like let's ban critical race theory because it's all about hating white people and division is divisive and then you also get the softer stuff like uh let's just import some black judges who will then gatekeep the rest of the community and um, you know i can't control what white people do so i don't really bother my mind with you know how like white people act because the and i don't mean all white people obviously but like how you know I, I don't bother my mind with that they'll always do that the things that you know, frustrate me on what we do, you know? Um, and yeah, and I, so, I mean, like, I don't really think we can get caught up in like arguing critical race theory with people who haven't read it, you know? I think we just know that, you know, this is just one of the mechanisms of resistance that the white system will always have. And then eventually they'll just drop it and then pretend it never happened, right? <laughs> and this is the point of the culture wars. And they'll be like, everybody knows that, you know? <laughs> Mm -hmm. Well, I wanted to go back to a, a link that you made there, which is that, you know, in such weird ways, although we, ways that are very familiar to those who study the history of the United States and Canada and, and the kind of imperialist world, there's a funny way that critical race theory uh, and other uh, Black liberation movements get in some way rolled up with a kind of critique or fear around communism and socialism. And, you know, early in the in the 20th century, there was this idea that, you know, wicked Marxists at, who were often portrayed as Jews were like manipulating black people into uprisings and that this was going to lead to a kind of destruction of civilization. And in a certain no, way, no, I feel that's the Soros thing. Soros be funding everything. Right. Right. Um, I mean, I was reading this fascist Globe and Mail editorial the other day. Did you see the Globe and Mail editorial where they supported the clearing of the encampments? So. No. The Global Mail, because this is another thing that happens, because the Global Mail is terrified of being called like a liberal organ. So they always have to, you know, bring in for balance, you know, conservative, as if they're not conservative in the first place. So, you know, the idea of like balance in mainstream media is like, you know, from far right 
to center right, you know, and like the Globe and Mail, which is center right, then has to do these performances of don't worry, you know. So they, they did this whole editorial basically supporting like the, the clearing of the encampments. Um, and then you look at the comments, and uh, so people went out, right? Like people went out in the hundreds to protect their neighbors, their friends, the people who are members of their communities living in these encampments, and they got pepper sprayed in the face. People got like, you know, beat with batons. Um, you know, Skyla from La Skyla Williams from Landback from, uh, Lane, like 4092, got beat with a pipe by a cop. He has like stitches on his eyebrow. You know, like people got the shit kicked out of them. People with disabilities and they're in like wheelchairs being beaten by the cops. And people did this because they recognize that you have to show up. And then you read the comments. And of course, because these people are so devoid of any compassion or humanity, they cannot simply imagine a world where someone might show up and take pepper spray in the face with somebody else. So it's all, oh, these paid protesters, you know, they make money off this, you know? And I'm like, which really shows just how, A, it's the conspiracy theory and B, it's the bankruptcy of the idea that you actually have to believe that people who are sacrificing things is fake because then that might require you to believe that you could sacrifice things right so it's also a very nihilistic view of the world and mm -hmm. i think we're seeing that all over the place i used to watch you know those shows like the sort of youtube left in the us i used to watch a lot of those shows and then it became like unbearable but this was always their kind of space that he could never get beyond like just the politics of hypocrisy right you just point out the democrats say this but then they do this and i'm like okay like we get that and that's yes that is part of your coming to consciousness like you know when you're a young black person very much you're like how come white people can do this and i can you know and then you have to move beyond that and start being like how do we organize to get the things we want and need you can't just stay in the place of rich people have things and we don't you know like and that leads you to this very like cynical nihilistic politics which i think you see everywhere which i think is part mm -hmm. of neoliberalism and the idea that people feel that the system is so closed um that there's nothing you can do so you know, instead of confronting the idea of why is this happening, you just go, oh, all those people that say they care about it are paid protesters by Soros and other Jewish people, you know, and then, you know, we all know that's a joke, you know, like, so this idea that you can't even imagine the basic act of human compassion, never mind not having prisons or police, right? So it, it, I think it's just a, a major function of like late stage neoliberalism slash capitalism, right? Um, mm -hmm. Which is what, you know, why we see all these conspiracy theories all over the place, because it offers you a totalizing sense-making reason, right? Like once you have whatever it is, whether that's, you know, QAnon, whether that's, you know, like you see in, in the UK in particular, like this really transphobic obsession with a figure of like the trans woman becomes, you know, so like they literally have this whole thing like Stonewall is capturing organizing and it becomes this huge conspiracy like through trans women in particular because trans men never figure into any of this, whether that's, you know, BLM is like controlling the black community, you know, so it's always and that offers a kind of relief of thought, right, because now you have a simple narrative that you can invest in and that is, of course, you know, the more information we have, the more confusing things are and people don't know how to cut through it. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't think it's any surprise. You see this kind of thinking, but it's the same thoughts just rejigged. So yeah, the the global Jewish conspiracy just becomes the new world order, just becomes Soros pays for everything, right? So totally. I mean, and the irony here is that in a lot of the discussion around um, vaccine hesitancy, there's been a kind of hand wringing in the sort of neoliberal mediascape about. Uh, you know, what are often euphemized as sort of like ethnic communities uh, are reticent to get vaccines. And, and there's this kind of subtext that suggests that these communities are less educated, less uh, less sort of skeptical or more too skeptical. 
but there's a strange way that conspiracy and conspiratorial thinking has also been racialized in the dominant discourse, which in the first place erases all of the things you've just been spoken about and how, in fact, whiteness is entering this incredibly violent, paranoid period of its own conspiracy theories uh, or perhaps rekindling them but then also hides the incredibly long legacy on this continent and around the world of things that can really be called conspiracies targeting black people and racialized it's not, like it's not black, black people conspiracies it's just we tend to shut the fuck up about stuff and just say it among ourselves so white people only wander into it 20 years late you know like you know like black people have all kinds of conspiracies too right like it's not Certainly, I mean, obviously it's more public with white people and tends to obviously have more of an effect. Like black people don't get to legislate our hotep conspiracies or whatever, but you know, there's all the five percenter stuff and you know, all that. Like, I mean, and again, for, for reasons, because it offers you a certain amount of, of security in your thought. And again, when you're younger, a lot of us went through these phases of like the Iceman inheritance and stuff, you know, which offers you a, a space to, I guess, reject whiteness, which I think is really important, right? That you know, when you're like a young black thinker and you're coming to understand white supremacy is like constant impact on your life. I think it did offer us stuff to go to like those theories about melanin, you know, like, like, I don't know how much of this stuff you're familiar with, but everyone kind of goes through this phase. Like, you know, the melanin is the substance of the universe and white people are trying to steal our melanin through like melatonin pills or whatever. Um, you know, there's like obviously all the Jacob stuff um, and it serves like a purpose we just obviously people just don't know what we think and when it bursts into like public view then white people act all like oh my god can you believe like these black people saying something people been saying this forever right like so i mean i i don't want to suggest that like black people are free of this stuff and black people are also not free of homophobia and transphobia and all the other things because we live in society but um yeah like i think like when it comes to the anti-vax stuff like i mean there's a difference between his hesitancy based on the historical um, well, there's a few things. One of is that black people, again, tend to just shut the fuck up. So black people don't, if you don't plan on getting the vaccine, you just kind of shut up and don't get the vaccine. Whereas like white people of the ilk that join, you know, the anti-mass anti-vaccine, you know, this sort of I'm for liberty. And again, I do think that's about neoliberalism again, because people can't find any way to the bigger things in the system. And it's really easier to fixate on these small things. So, you know, like you're like, okay, I'm wearing th that mask is like, you know, invading my freedom and it you, you can fixate on that and like feel like you're getting power through not wearing your mask because it's impossible to get power in other ways right like you can't stop yourself from being evicted you can't stop your job from paying you minimum wage you can't stop you know like your health from declining with no health care you can't pay for your kids to go to college like all those things so then it's easy to fixate on a mask right um to a certain extent black i mean a black people don't really get into that stuff because it's full of white people so like you know, black people aren't going there. B, we know that if we go around those rallies, the ones the police will come to and beat is us. So black people aren't that stupid. Um, when white people are marching without masks and stuff, like they're fine. They get to parade through Chinatown and Toronto every week. Like black people can do that and black people know that. And then also like, yeah, I just, I don't know. I mean, but it's not like there isn't hesitancy in the black community, but as you said, there's this kind of um, infantilizing that people can't make choices for themselves. So it's not just we need to create access. Let's put vaccine clinics in the black community. It becomes this kind of like black people don't know how to read. They don't know how to do science, you know, um, like as if the minute you think differently from what the white majority wants you to think there's some kind of defect there. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and people can never leave black people to ourselves to think things out for ourselves. So 
there always has to be this oversight, this paternalism. Like we're just never, like I always say this about Twitter, you know, like I'm not on Twitter, but you know, I creep people's Twitters and obviously like my black friend's Twitter, no matter what it is, there's always some like white person squatting on that Twitter to say something like, don't you have better things to do? Like we don't pay attention to you, but people need to be obsessed with black people in a particular way. So we're never like, that's why we can't hold black only meetings without people freaking out. Like, why can't I'm white and I merge a black person? Why can't I come in the meeting? You know, because this idea that, and this goes back to enslavement, right? The slaves are plotting behind the big house massa, right? There's this idea that we must always be watched and always, and we can never be allowed off on our own through policing that becomes a gang, you know? Um, so, so yeah, like we're just never allowed the space to do or think or talk things out among ourselves or like be wrong about things or debate. And of course the broader white culture also cannot handle dissent and disagreement between black people. Like the media just grinds to a dead stop if there's like black people having a political dispute. They just, you know, so like I got this call from me about Adam E. Paul, you know, <laughs> like, and they're like, oh, Adam E. Paul says it's sexism and racism. You know, the part I'm like, I would oppose her. And then she was like, so taken aback. And I'm like, I can both think that calling her an angry woman is racist. And I'm never going to discount racism and misogynoir because we always experience it no matter where we are. That's always a factor. But also, like, I disagree with Anime Paul, too. Like, I, like what I said is every single this scenario lacks principles. Like, I can't print that. Basically had to get off the phone. Like, you know, Jenica Atwood, and then she walked it back and we talked over to liberals and walked it back. So she towered with no principles. Anime no principles. Her, you know, so I'm just like every single, you know, like I'm like everyone involved in this is principle less, but that they can't handle that commentary. It's just supposed to be here's another angry black woman saying that, you know, like it's always racism. And then when we express something else that it can be racism and that nuanced view isn't allowed to appear. And then people go, black people only ever talk about race. Well, because you're not letting us talk about our class differences or our political differences. Um, you know, we're not allowed to be in the media being like, I actually disagree with Wes Hall and what he's doing. Like I condemn Black North Initiative because I condemn capitalism, right? They, they, they will never print that. And if they do that, it's like some activists, you know, like, so yeah, this is a huge problem with, with like even understanding Black discourse if you're not Black, because like so much of it, it, it it's not being translated, the people don't understand it, you know, so it becomes very like, yeah, there's one black view and it's this and it's obama you know and you're like no 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 like we're like any other community we have massive political disputes we obviously we have every range of people from extremely radical to conservative there's tons of black conservatives like this isn't news you know mm -hmm. um so yeah i think parsing black people's sort of political beliefs is, is like you know it's very hard if you just rely on media or what you're seeing or and then of course the media selects our leaders and our spokespeople too right so then they're like, oh, this person's speaking for the black community. You're like, who is this person? I don't even know this person. <laughs> I, yeah. I, just I mean, for they're international. They're telling themselves. So something, I mean, Wes Hall, I don't want to sound like I'm picking on him, but I am because I don't see Bay Street as any kind of solution. But one of the things he said was that um, this judge, I won't get into it, but said to him, so they're like, why? he said he's a reluctivist because basically another elite said to him, we can't have all these thousands of people out in the streets. They need a leader. Like, this is literally how the black elite think. How dare we have a mass movement of working class people protesting the state? That has to be crushed. So let's talk business instead. And, and this is out of people's own mouths. Like people tell on themselves all the time, right? So, and this is of course the difficulty because we do face white supremacy. We do face racist attacks. Like Obama faces racism, but I can also disagree with him, right? But that kind of, and like, I think one of our challenges is 
we haven't been built traditionally for power in terms of like our traditional ways of like dealing as a black community, right? Because we never had power. So now that we do have power in places, it's very hard for people, I think, to adjust the idea that like the minister of immigration, for example, when we were fighting Abdul Abdi's deportation was a Somali man, not just a black man, but a Somali man. So then we're going up against him because he's deporting black people. And it's like, oh no, but he's black. He's one of you. You know, um, we do have black judges, we do have black wardens, we do have black police chiefs. And that sort of black code, which made sense in 1950, if we only have one, so everybody shut the fuck up. If this person rapes you, if they're still in the community, it doesn't matter because we need this door open. But that's not the case in 2021. So, and we haven't, I think, adjusted to this idea that class power matters too, right? So um, this is respectability politics, right? And I mean, this isn't new, this thinking came up around, you know, particularly the Obama, right? Where this really demonstrated once and for all the problems of the idea of representational thinking, um, the problems of leaving out a class analysis, the problems with all of this, right? Um, the thing that's irritating though is black people, of course, have been critiquing this stuff for generations. And then the, you know, sort of progressive white left finds it and thinks they're launching some kind of new critique and like never cites all the black people who are already being criticized. Like black people have been criticizing so-called identity politics for ages. Black people have been criticizing respectability politics for ages. Like back to the 1920s, like Du Bois was doing this criticism a hundred years ago. Like this isn't new. You know, Chris Hani was writing in like the 1960s about the ANC being total sellouts. You know, like this is why it's so comforting to read black history and our, our great black thinkers because everything you're experiencing happened 100 years ago 50 years ago and people wrote about it and thought their way through it like this isn't new and i think what's also frustrating of course like because we're not considered like essential thought then people white people in particular then come out with these ideas and think they're the first people to criti critique identity politics and like why aren't black people critiquing that and i'm like we started this critique we've been critiquing racial capital since the beginning of capitalism <laughs> like Eric Williams is writing about this stuff. It's really not new, you know? So um, this is by no means a new critique. It's just, you know, intensifying, obviously, the more and more, because part of neoliberalism, of course, like as long as it's an elite, it doesn't matter. I remember that great, you know, remember when um, Ellen was at the like football game with George W. Bush and somebody had the great caption, class solidarity in action. But like, that's what it is, right? You know, people are like, wait, but you're gay and he's homophobic. It doesn't matter, right? Like at that level, it doesn't matter. You know, Michelle Obama taking the cough candy from George W. Bush and then people are like, but he's a war criminal. And like, be nice. <laughs> you know, like, and which is also the amnesia induced by, you know, our society in general, white society in white supremacy in particular, right? Is always about inducing amnesia. We had no idea there were bodies at these sites for which everybody said that bodies were outside of for generations. How shocking for the thousandth time, you know? We're newly shocked every day at the evidence of racism existing. It's always shocking. And people always have to show up and act brand new all the time. And then the issue I have is when black people who should know better, I think, although that's not fair to say, but you know, want to act brand new too. You know, and I'm like, we can't act brand new. We've been here before. People, our greatest thinkers have dedicated, like this is what black, like the greatest African thinkers, like since the beginning of colonization have been like, fuck, what do you do when the soldiers show up? You know? Like, like we've been theorizing this for generations and, and you know, this idea that we don't have to read that or access it and then continue as though we, we can move in ahistorical ways and that doesn't benefit us. It's white supremacy that wants to be ahistorical. We as black people have to know these things because all that happens is they repeat. And then the problem is you were made to look crazy when you recognize the pattern. So, you know, when obviously coming from Nova Scotia with Buff, if you've read Rocky Jones's um, autobiography, um, 
Rocky Burnley John's revolutionary. I mean, he talks extensively in that about, so for those who don't know what I'm talking about, um, after the destruction of Africville in the 60s, obviously black people recognized that one reason why they were able to do this is we had no political organization. So, you know, we had no effective way of fighting back. So black people in Nova Scotia started talking about like, we need some kind of political organ. And that became the Black United Front. And what happened in those meetings is of course, those who were the respectable ones, like um, obviously tried to oppose this strenuously. And when they realized that it was gonna happen anyway, they voted themselves onto the board. Right. So they're like, OK, if you can't beat them, join them. So then they got themselves voted in through like, you know, they obviously have large contingents of people. And Rocky went away to deal with actually um, Sir George Williams, like the, the uprising in Montreal. Right. Um, so this is when the Caribbean students were getting like worse grades for the same paper. So they hacked and got like white students numbers and submitted the same papers and showed that like, you know, when they had a white person's name, they're getting an A and when they had their own names getting seen, they ended up occupying the computer lab. And then, you know, so, and many of those people obviously were Grenadians that go back to like be instrumental in the Grenadian revolution if they get deported from Canada, right? And so Rocky Jones was there and present. So while he's like away dealing with that, um, the neo-libs, although that wasn't the term at the time, you know, promptly took over Buff, went to the government and were basically like, give us funding because if you don't support us then like these radicals are going to you know be giving everyone guns and then of course the government paid them off and you know so if you recognize that and i was lucky enough to know rocky it's not that hard when something like bni or the federation of black canadians or face or black opportunity fund or whatever pops up to recognize this mechanism and just through basic pattern thinking being like okay this is what they always do but if you don't know that then it's easy to be like, oh, this is exciting, like another organization, you know? So, and then when you say, okay, no, we all know what's gonna happen, these are the steps. And this is what you were talking about with um, like recurring, reoccurring, the same narratives just reoccur, updated. So if you recognize them, it's not that hard to understand what's happening. But if you wanna operate in an ahistorical world, then everything's always surprising. So yeah, I, I mean, especially for black people, for our own survival, we really have to recognize history and these patterns and what's happening so that we can do better to push back on it when it happens. And what happens is people are like, oh, L, you don't know what's gonna happen yet. Oh, why are you being so judgmental? And three years later, everyone's like, yeah, that thing sucked. And you're like, I told you. And not because yeah. I'm a genius, because I like read, you know? Yeah. And, but, but that's, you know. It's, and I don't mean to sound like I'm some lone truth teller on the mountaintop. Like obviously the reason why I can know and see these things is because I push myself to be in conversation with my elders. When I travel, I, I always want to go and go into different communities and see what people are doing. Cause that's the only way to like, you know, like connect movements and learn, you know, when you go to Jamaica and you find like people that are protesting the bauxite mining, you know, in the cockpit country, and then you learn from what they're doing. And like, you don't have to reinvent the wheel, right? Like you can always come back and like see those, those strategies, right? Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, I, and I feel like that ties back to our conversation of conspiracies and conspiracy fantasies that they like often breed and grow in those spaces where people just are completely unaware of the histories that have gone before. Um, and one thing I wanted to tie it into, and, and before I get to the question, I just want to encourage those who are in the Zoom room here with us, if they have questions to post them in the chat or to send them to me directly in the chat and I can pass them on to Elle or raise your hand if you want to ask a question directly. Uh, but the thing I wanted to tie it back to was that- Sorry, it's my hair in my mouth, so I just looked gross picking in my mouth. Sorry, my hair was in my throat. Um, <laughs> uh, Hi, you too. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, I was thinking about things like in the United States, COINTELPRO, or here in Canada, the way that RCMP and later CSIS constantly harassed and targeted uh, Black and racialized organizers, or around the world, the way that 
black liberation movements for national liberation or internationalism has been subverted by, you know, uh, northern countries, notably, but not exclusively the CIA, often with Canadian complicity, for instance, in Haiti. Again, and then that's all conspiracy theory, right? So and black people are like, hey, they're releasing radiation on neighborhoods. They're like, don't be stupid. And then it's like, no, they were releasing. Remember how the FBI, the CIA sold this crap was supposed to be a conspiracy theory and was totally true. So, I mean... This is also the problem, right? That sometimes what gets written off as conspiracy is actually just recognizing the totalizing way that the state conducts its oppression, right? And particularly when oppressed people recognize these things. So it, that gets written as conspiracy theory and everyone mocks it, you know, and that was actually true, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, and we saw this with, um, you know, like, I mean, the surveillance of Cindy Black stuff, right? Like indigenous land defenders and, you know, people just like suing the federal government because they're not giving enough money to kids in care and are responsible for neglect, right? Like, you know, and then if you're like, I'm being watched, like, oh, you conspiracy thinker. So, yeah, I mean, and I, again, I do think that conspiracy theory is directly tied to this sense of like, there's no way in to the state to fight it. So it's, and then same thing that Twitter disputes are based in, right? Like when you don't feel like you have a clear path to resistance, then people sort of alleviate that energy through these kind of things, right? Right? And so mm -hmm. organization is the response wherever that is. We always have to believe that we can organize, that we can organize across communities and that we can fight the system. Because I, I think that's the biggest thing. They really have it because they're in our phones. They are in our phones. You know, they are in our neighborhoods. They do have cameras. They can track us. This is all true. And yes, they do and can throw us in prison. They do and can kill us. You know, when you look at all the activists in Ferguson who have died in suspicious circumstances, that's not conspiracy theory. That is what the state has done to people for generations, right? Like, you know, when, when uh, people in, you know, Wet'suwet'en are talking about like the RCMP was like bringing, like, like this is, is stuff that eventually gets worn out in the evidence and we know it to be true. And then, but because people feel like they can't even take that weight on, it's easier to retreat into like uh, either a conspiracy or like, you know, it's easier to sort of deal with like Twitter or something, you know, and, and that that's human. I'm not condemning that. I'm saying that's part of the function of, this state at this time. And what's challenging for us is to find ways to organize around it, to recognize that, you know, we actually can build and do different things, you know? So back to speaking about the encampments, even though that resistance, like it failed in the sense of like they got cleared, like there's no way that you can stand up against hundreds and hundreds of cops, but you can still go out and demonstrate that that can happen. And of course, there's two reasons why those encampments are being destroyed. One is the blight upon, you know, the eyes of the gentrified middle class as they drink their $15 cocktails, like the sin of homeless people being like visible. But the other is also, I think, the threat of those encampments building different space, like what we saw in Occupy, the idea that you make it evidence that another world is possible and not in these ways that are called you know ponies and fairy dust oh you guys want something that can't exist when you show it can exist that's when it has to be destroyed so oh you mean people can go outside the shelter system you mean people even without the things we're told we need for a basic life can in a tent or a shelter build a life for themselves you mean people actually can live cooperatively and look out for each other without police because people can actually like manage and organize themselves you mean people can share food you mean people keep each other safe like if you follow that through it has really terrible implications for the state so yes it's about like brutalizing people who are homeless and they're not homeless they have homes the state is stealing the homes that they have right um it's about that but then i think it's also about making sure that nobody gets any ideas like don't think that you can leave the system because we have to be in it like the idea of opting out of it is is impossible, you know, like, because then then if we all realized we could opt out, like, where would we be, right? So, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm.
Uh, I'm going to summarize a couple of questions that I've got here uh, in the chat uh, around questions of education. Um, you know, a lot of the time we're told that the solution to uh, racism is just to educate people more and better. Uh, and yet also at the same time, education is obviously important. I mean, both of us are educators. It's what we've chosen to do with our lives. What, you know, when you think about anti-racist education, what is that what does that look like? And especially in the context of a moment of, as you've pointed out, when people lack history and are reaching for the first thing in sight, it often gravitates towards a kind of conspiratorial theory of power rather than a structural and systemic analysis that might actually give yeah, us- Yeah, and I mean, just to sort of go back to that, I mean, it's always funny because you know how um, you've been at these protests, the Halifax War Conference, what's it called? Halifax Security Conference. So they all told it the Western brought to us courtesy of Peter McKay. That is like the actual gathering of power, you know, like that's the actual like new world order, right? Where like the, literally, I don't know if people know what I'm talking about. It's this um, conference they hold in Halifax every year. It's like 10th or 11th year now, um, inaugurated under Peter McKay. It was supposed to pay for itself. It does not pay for itself. We fund it. Um, they lock the door so you can't go in the public. And then literally when you look at this, John McCain came through, Condoleezza Rice was there, all of like the, you know, G20 generals. And then like the newspapers editors are there and then the economist think tanks and they'll throw in a couple of sessions on women's rights or something. And they, they used to have the whole agenda pretty much available online. I think they took them down. But if you trace them, you could literally see. So, you know, in 2009, you know, they'd be talking about like, the, is the path to China through Syria, you know? And then it's like a few years later, we're at war with Syria. What a shock. You know, you can really see the bill and like how these narratives are built. And I'm like, you know, people also people don't just get in a room together and smoke cigars and like decide these things. I'm like, sometimes they do actually. At uh, the Westin is one of these places, right? Uh, yet people don't go out and protest that. It's always like the tiniest protest of like old communists and like the amazing like anti-war grandmothers that have been like you know chaining themselves to bridges since like 1940. You know what I mean? And I'm like, but all these people that are all about conspiracy thinking that you know, oh, there's a conspiracy against Michael Jackson or something. I'm like, here's the actual power side. Like we should all be out here challenging these actual people. But when they're in our faces it's like you know we don't it's like we can't see our way to challenging that you know i don't know so anyway but um sorry i, I forgot the question i just wanted to talk about the education that's war form uh the question education I think right well i think first of all it's really important to separate like for example when i talk about doing the political reading i don't mean everyone has to attend grad school right I, I do not believe that the reading is only limited to those who have a certain level of education. I actually think that's something that's a conspiracy that's being put upon us. The idea that now, you know, knowing our political shit is elitist. Like Franz Fanon was, you know, 27 years old when he wrote Black Skin, White Mass in the middle of fighting a liberation war. If he could sit and write that text, surely we can read it, you know, like, but we don't want to read what Fanon had to tell us while he fought with his body, you know, while also psychiatrizing the colonizer right like and he was young he was 18 fighting in, in the war in the world war ii and then coming back and fighting a liberation war right and so this idea that we're we've been convinced that that has nothing to do with ordinary black people and that belongs to grad school like no you know the idea that like and, and like th these people lived and died for us like these are our works and this isn't theoretical because i've sent these works into prison and they've held reading circles like they they read our prisons obsolete they're reading fanon they that you know, and they don't have formal educations, most of them, but they know what's up. They live in oppression. They understand perfectly. And even if the person can't read word for word what Fanon is saying, when somebody else is like, this is what Fanon is talking about 
they know what he's talking about and they can contribute to that discussion. So I, you know, I refuse that infantilization as you were talking about earlier of like the average black person that the you know, black people can't grasp and hold ideas. You know, this idea that that only belongs to like one class of people that is absolutely violent. You know, our minds belong to us and everybody has a mind. You don't have to, you know, use it in university. You don't have, but you, and again, like all this theorizing comes from the working classes anyway, like this is not specially made up. So like, I think it's important to locate that idea first that like doing the reading, I'm not saying that because, you know, it's a badge to be worn. I'm saying it because it's a survival of us. Um, the other thing is that I think along with, I think orienting ourselves within the political reading, which again, I just really want to emphasize is important. You cannot run organization if you're like, I just mentioned, you know, Chris Haney, it was a great comfort to me to read Chris Haney talking about the ANC, you know? And I'm like, he, so those who don't know Chris Haney, he was the head of MKM in Conduce, this way, the armed wing of the ANC. And basically when all the ANC leaders are in exile, he's on the ground struggling in, in South Africa, like running the struggle. And he's saying like, these people are now living in exile in like London in mansions. And they're fundraising constantly. They're getting all this money. None of it's going to the people living in, in like shacks and none of it's going to the people spilling their blood. And he just called that out. And of course they tried to execute him for saying that. Chris Haney narrowly escaped death, you know? Like, so if he can do that and think that way, we can read it. This man risked his life to write that down for us. So that seven years later, we could be like, that shit's happening now. You know, so that's why I don't say to read it for some intellectual purpose. I say to read it so that we understand what is happening. But I also think that has to be accompanied by organizing. Knowledge without organizing is, is, is self-masturbation. You know, like it, it's for the people. We have to share it. We have to bring it out. We have, this is why every revolutionary movement had an educational wing, right? Like if you ever watched a documentary, what's it called? Um, Lauren Hill is, is narrating it. You know what I'm talking about? Um, uh, no, 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 no. The one that takes all the footage of like Cabral and stuff. I forget what it's called. Oh yeah. Um, I know the one you mean. You know yeah. what I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah. Something violence. I, I can't remember. Yeah. Like, just violence yeah. or something like that. I can't remember what it's uh, called. Violence maybe. Or, yeah. Yeah. Something like that. And it has like all the footage and you see them like sitting around reading like with their yeah. rifles beside them. Mao understood that. I'm not saying I support like every one of these movements is perfect. My point isn't like, don't go away and be like, L, L is like advocating a cultural revolution. What I am saying though, is that Mao understood how to strategize and he understood that like, and I mean, he divided it up, right? Like certain amount of months you fought on the, the front and then you returned and you did the reading and political education, right? Like this has always been a piece of, and again, don't take this as me like, jumping straight to like, you must take arms. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that this is the political theory behind this, right? But it has to be accompanied by organizing. Um, I think the best example I have of that is within the prison movement, you know, where you have people that are, you know, so like black and indigenous who are coming from that perspective of colonialism, oppression, understanding the state, those kind of things. And then you have like theoretical abolition, like people in the academy, people who are like, okay, I fought this out in like prisons. And then you also have like families of people who died in prison. And many of those people are like conservative people from know, like London, Ontario or something whose sister died in prison. They will tell you, you know, that they never thought about it. You know, when their sister went to jail, they'll told she'll get the help she needs. And they believed it because how would they know? You know, like that's what we're taught that, you know, and then, then one day you got a call saying like your daughter died and you find out, you know, that, she wasn't giving medication or she was setting herself on fire or whatever horrible thing was happening. And they come into this prison movement because they're fighting for their family. And many of those people, not because they're ignorant or stupid, just because this is not education that we do on a general basis. Like they don't 
necessarily like understand like indigenous colonization the link of the prison to that sometimes people are, are hostile when they come into that idea right so they're like why are we always talking about like indigenous people my family's white and they died in prison and over time we have to work together we don't have that kind of luxury of just like block and delete you know like oh i don't i don't have time for this like we have to work together and those of us without the lived experience of that have to listen to that family and not just be oh you're wrong like you know here is like here, read the book, you know, like, like that would be so inhumane. And over time, as people are working towards this goal, organizing in coalition, we may not agree on everything, right? It's not that we have to share every belief or share every theory, but we understand we're working towards a particular goal. And I think that's really, really important. I think young people perhaps don't do as much organizing in coalition as, as might I might advocate for, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you know, that was sort of very old school. Like everyone kind of organizing coalition. There's reasons not to. Obviously, like power relations don't go away within a coalition, right? And like, obviously the left has consistently defaulted to like white men, white men. I mean, part of the anger on the new left right now and this like realignment with the right is basically white men being mad that they're not the leaders of the left anymore. And they can't handle that like queer black people are, you know, the most radical thinkers. And like, then they turn into these concerns, like, you know, like the Glenn Greenwalds and the Matt Tybees and stuff who have like, you know, gone conservative in many ways and I think it's also just like how dare you not let me lead the left like how dare these black people be out here like talking this stuff you know but yeah I think that I do think it's important you can take it or leave it I think you have to have an experience with it and then you can decide if it works for you or not like everyone needs to organize within their own style but I do think that that is important we can't yeah like if you only talk to people you agree with and I don't mean here that like you have to like let white supremacists hang around, but I mean like we do have to engage in political debate. A huge part of de- decolonialism was this, you know, my grandfather was on the ground in Trinidad um, when they were decolonizing. They had to figure these things out, right? Like how are we going to set up an education system? What is our health system? Like everything they had to rebuild, right? As they tried to think about what will this society when England is gone look like? And my mom just, you know, like remembers they've screaming at each other you know like, like this is what and trinidad is known for this if you read invisible man you know the, the crazy trini in that book like that's just trinis you know but like that kind of intense political discussion and it wasn't personal and then you know at the end and then you still played your cards and drank together you didn't get offended but you had to discuss this is reasoning in rasta culture right a very important decolonial act where people sit around and they argue and discuss with each other i think in Canada, A, we're stuck with this like passive aggressive waspism that like uh, disagreement is violence, you know, which I think comes out of our very like wasp up a Canada kind of thing. Like one should only talk about game shows and the weather at dinner, you know, <laughs> like let, net, let us never stray into anything else that might cause discomfort. So I think it's somewhat Canadian passive aggressiveness, but it's also capitalism, right? Mm. Um, the idea of being wrong is somehow losing you status. Like the idea of, of just being like, oh, I rethought that. And we see this in our political landscape where somebody changes their mind. It's like, oh, you're a flip-flopper. I'm like, or you lived some more and changed your mind. Like we're actually supposed to change our minds. I'm often surprised by stuff I read that I wrote even like a few years ago. Cause in my mind, I was always like super radical, you know? <laughs> and then like you read stuff that you wrote, you're like, what the fuck? Like I was talking about body camera, you know? Like, because your thinking moves, you know? And then you forget it, you wipe it out and you're like, oh no, I've always been like this. And then you're like, no, of course our thinking progresses, of course. And we've all accelerated so much in the last few years. Like it's actually 
fascinating to think how fast we've gone, you know, like mm-hmm. I think about somebody describing the South African like apartheid revolution that way that suddenly we were just running into the sea. And I feel like we're kind of doing that. Like one minute we were all still sort of sitting around talking about representation in government and being happy for Obama. And, and then all of a sudden we were all like abolitionists, you know, and like turning into like black anarchists, you know, and I'm like, I don't even believe in the state anymore. You know, like we just went so fast. And I think we have this tendency to, to always think we were always there and, I, and we weren't, you know, mm-hmm. um, but we don't live in a culture that rewards that, that rewards that nuance and complex thinking and the ability to be wrong and backing down, you know? So we feel like we have to sort of, and then if somebody's arguing with us, like we feel very personally attacked. And I understand that too. I'm a black woman. I take all kinds of illegitimate critique and it beca- can become diff- difficult to separate legitimate critique from the illegitimate, right? That when you take so much irrelevant critique, that's just about you. And then when somebody comes to you with critique, you're, you're so, you're already pre-hurt that it can be very difficult to say, okay, but that critique I need to take on board, right? But I think, yeah, like that, that's, I really, we need to, to engage that, you know, like um, within our circles, like we have to have political debate and like really be thinking through ideas, really challenging ourselves, really reflecting, you know, the idea of abolition, everything must change also means ourselves, right? It doesn't mean that we're perfect and the rest of the world must change. It means that we are always complicit in capitalism you know i'm like i was joking with max beforehand i'm like wearing a nike shirt to the, like this lecture I, I mean i was i got it at winners you know <laughs> it was it was half off but you know like we all are inconsistent you know bell hook says when you live in a culture based on domination you'll fail your own values every single day and that's true you know like you know i can talk shit about old black capitalism it's not like i don't consume you know it's not like i don't didn't want and strive for a well-paid middle-class professional job. It's not like I'm not massively privileged through an education system. And I have all kinds of like immigrant beliefs in me around like the need for success and what success is that I constantly feel double consciousness about, you know, or I can both know that what is important is what people in prison think of your organizing and also get angry that I don't get any awards, you know, like, like that is human. Leanne Simpson talks about that. Like, of course I want the likes, of course I want the bestseller, of course I want, you know, the governor general award, of course I want those things, but I don't want them enough to sacrifice what I think are my principles for them. But it is very, very hard, you know, like you will always then live in that state of like, not enough of wanting, of restlessness, of desire. Um, the second last essay in my dissertation is called What is Desire to an Abolitionist? And it's like trying to think this through, right? Like the problem of like wanting things, like wanting to look cute in the way that, you know, you're supposed to look cute, you know, wanting to, yeah, have the nice clothes, wanting the nice job. And like, what does that do for us as abolitionists? Like when we desire those things and how do we unwork those desires within ourselves, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's difficult. So I know some of this, I sound like I'm just super critical of other people and I am, but also because we are all bound up in this and we have to be critical of ourselves too. And so part of that education has to be being able to reflect on and think about our own ideas, which I credit my mom for in my case. Did I miss, uh, did I, I rapid fire the last questions? I know we're out of time, but if anyone had a question, I can just super rapid fire them without a 20 minute monologue. Well, William had a question about Waco. And yeah. I guess I want to, I do want to take that up really quickly. The interesting thing about that is it's rather like the January 6th thing, right? Where we can both despise the people involved and know that they would despise us and also know that the state is also acting on them as like, so I don't have to agree with the people wearing like three percenter shirts and like the Holocaust never happened shirts. Like obviously those are people who would run me over with a car, but I can also object to the state 
violating their civil rights because I know they will come for us next. And the violation of their rights is the prelude to the mass violation of our rights, right? So this is a really, and this is like, one of the difficult things that abolitionists have to think through. If we don't want prisons, it means no prisons for cops that kill us as well, right? It means that too. And we can't selectively hold that principle. And that's what makes it complex. It's not as simple as a hashtag, like hashtag abolition, I'm an abolitionist. Like you really have to think, yes, that means child pedophile. Like it does mean that. And what are we going to do? And we can't dodge that question because it's inconvenient. We have to think it through, you know? So in terms of Waco, I actually was just reading about that like this week. And, you know, when you look at, yeah, I mean, the fact that the FBI said they didn't throw like incendiary devices and then 10 years later they did, you know? And it's easy to write that off and not care because they are so-called despicable people. But so are the people I work with who are accused of, or convicted of murder or of gang violence or are labeled dangerous offenders, right? And this is the problem is we cannot say, oh, we want no deportations, but just for the children that were in foster care. It has to be for all. Um, if we want to, like, yes, the, the, I've, I've worked to people in prison that have called me the N-word, like, to my face, you know, but they're still facing an injustice. Like, I still, I'm going to fight for that. It's not relevant in that. I'm not going to be like, have you heard about white privilege? Like, you know, somebody sitting in prison, you know, I, I worked with a Nazi, you know, like, and that doesn't, like, not for them to do Nazi things, but, you know, like, they, like they're facing, like, I, I just think, you know, that's a really difficult principle to hold, but um, yeah, so I mean, when it comes to things like January 6th or yeah, like I just saw the thing on, um, did you, I don't know, William, did you see the thing on um, how the FBI had, had uh, infiltrated that so-called militia with Gretman Whitmer and that was all FBI business too, which I guess we all could have known because this is what the FBI does. So yes, do I like these far right militia guys? No, but they also do that to Muslim people. They also do that to black people. We must fight it everywhere. That doesn't mean we endorse it. Um, I also, we also must fight like hate crimes, the idea of hate crimes legislation. like that one of the ways they're sort of getting the state into our lives is through this idea of hate crimes, right? Like, don't you want these people prosecuted? And I'm like, no, because next thing you know, you're gonna say it's a hate crime to say fuck the police, right? So we can never argue the expansion of punishments of the law, never. Even when they usually start with the people that everyone hates, they go, don't you all hate white supremacists? So let's do it to them. I'm like, yeah, but you're only doing it to them so you can do it to us. And so that's like the difficulty in this stuff. Um, and this is where the nuance is. Um, and this is where you have to push yourself on those things, right? That you really have to, and like, because I'm talking to you, I, I guess I sound like so sure in my ideas and like, I'm just lecturing you. And I actually wish it didn't sound that way because I think we have to be in a, a, a state of doubt. Um, I think we have to very much, and as we get older, like you have to fight crankism, you know? <laughs> so that sort of corollary to conspiracy theory is when your mind, letting your mind harden and not taking in new information, right? Like. And then you're like, I already know the world and I can already see things through the lens that I have. And this is why we get this generational stuff where it's very easy to be like, oh, these young people with their crazy identities, you know, like, like it's, it happens, right? And you really, oh, they don't know what they're doing. They're not reading the right books. They're not organizing the right way. And you do have to fight that in yourself too, right? Because this is, then you just sort of, then you turn into Glenn Greenwald or something eventually, you know? Like, so you, you really... It's hard, right? Because you have your own bitterness about things that happened to you, your own hurt, your own sense of I, I didn't get what I deserve. And you cannot infuse that into your organizational relationships, but it's hard to fight. Yeah, the hate crime arrest just happened in Utah for students to follow the police sign. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is in Hamilton, right, which has the most white supremacists in Canada, like 
three times. Like, you know, white supremacists literally march and don't get stopped. Um, I did an article once because our police chief came from Hamilton. I'm sorry, Max, I know I'm taking more time, so I'll shut up. But very quickly, our police chief used to be a deputy chief in Hamilton. He was like in charge of the hate crimes unit. So when he came to Halifax, this is Dan Kinsella. I wrote this article. I'm very proud of it. It's one of the articles I like. It's called uh, What Did Dan Kinsella Learn in Hamilton? And I went back into his record in Hamilton. One of the things that um, the anarchists there gave me, because they had done this research, was um, the reports from 2008 and 2009 on hate crimes. And like, there's like eight hate crimes recognized and three of them are people writing fuck the police. And then like the other one's like the anarchist signs, you know? So like, this is what they do with hate crimes legislation. So again, because the anarchists in Hamilton you know, gifted me that education and taught me that, I can now recognize that. So then now when people are saying, oh, we need hate crimes legislation, I'm like, no, yo, when you get hate crimes legislation, it actually is used against anti-capitalist organizing. The Hamilton's police concern with hate crimes was in 2009, they start talking about the Pan Am games, right? And organizing against like anti-capitalist organizing. That's what they're concerned with, not white supremacy. They don't give a fuck about white supremacists stockpiling guns. They don't care about that. They care about, they cared about people smashing the windows of banks, you know? So it's very instructive. Um, so that article is actually interesting um, on this idea of like the neoliberal state because I, I sort of go through and look at his record and all the things that, and it shows you like the future of policing. Mm -hmm.